good. 100% recording now. Welcome to episode 71 of Auto Off Topic. What's up, Brad? Not much. What's going on, Andrew? Not too much. Uh, let's see. A couple of project car updates. Right into things tonight. No banter. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we're just going to talk about the same thing. It's cold outside. The roads are salty. Uh, it's the middle of winter. Yes. Uh, we're almost done with winter. I don't know. No. No. I'd like to... I'm uh, just pretending that we're almost done with winter. Yeah, we still two months to go. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't think we want to hear the same thing over and over again. Grumpy, grumpy, grumble, grumble. Yeah, exactly. We just ate Korean. We're full. But we did have... A nice warm day last Saturday, and we talked about doing stuff. So the second nice warm Saturday in a row, actually, which is bizarre. Oh, and there's supposed to be another one coming up. So Right, and I have a hopefully large project update to fill everybody in on next week. Cool. But uh, what did we do? Um, we pulled the cylinder head off of my galant. That's right. Uh, which will be confusing to you if you listened last week when we talked about stripping the block down bare and sending it out. But there are two blocks. Yes. So the block that's in the car spun the bearing. That's the twist. There's yes. two blocks. The M. Night Shyamalan style ending to this it's podcast. A, it's a dual engine car. There's an yes. engine in the back. Four-wheel drive, four-wheel steering. Yeah. Two engines. Yeah. <laughs> I remember no. there was some, like, car entered in the uh, sports car, um, four-compact car, like, ultimate street car. It was a Talon that was the same color as mine, but oh, yeah, it was like yeah, twin yeah, engine. Yeah, twin engine one, yeah. So people did do that. And there was also a, I remember in like one of the grassroots challenges, there was like a Pontiac Grand Am with two engines in it, two ones. Yeah. Anyway, the Glant does not really have two engines. So the engine that's in the car. Wait, wasn't there like a, wasn't there a Cadillac that they did that? Was it like a factory concept car, wasn't it? And two North Star V8s. I thought it was one that was built by like Tim, uh, Tim the Toolman Taylor there. What was his name? Uh, Tim, Tim Allen. Allen. Yeah. Yeah, it probably could have been. I don't Maybe. remember. All Th- those that's weird... a, that's a, you know what? That's like a... Actually, you know what? There was a Chevy Citation, too, that had two engines in that it. That is a whole episode in itself. So let's not, engine cars. let's not go down that road right now. Um, yeah, no. Also, actually, I kind of want to have a, a, uh, open the suggestion box up, too, for listeners. Yes. That have, like, a specific topic they want us to delve deeper into. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That'd um, be fun. Because, you know, sometimes it's... You know, you think a topic that not only we'll enjoy, but we think that everybody will enjoy. So, or it's something you have never heard covered in depth. Yeah, like give me a heads up, and we'll try to research it. And yeah, and if we do find our best to yeah, cover, if we it. can do enough, or if we, uh, listen, we don't, we do research. We we know everything, obviously already. Oh, yeah, that's the secret, Andrew. Okay, we don't research these things. We just know all this stuff. Sure. Um. Anyway, so yes, yeah, so there's two motors involved here. Excuse me, Andrew. I apologize. Engines. There's two engines, engines involved I am, here. I am triggered. Um, there's the engine in the car, which spun the bearing and there's the replacement engine, which did not spin the bearing. Um, so, oh, you don't think it's not a bearing. There's one bearing missing, but it doesn't look like it's not a bearing. No. Um, so there's only one cylinder head between these two engines though. So the, in the car, the motor was still complete. That's going to be awkward to share. Yes. We're not going to share. We're going <laughs> to do anyway. Bad joke. At race and anger. Very folks. bad joke. Yes. <laughs> Um, so the cylinder head was still on the bad bottom end in the car. So we pulled that off. Um, it was like 50 degrees out. It was beautiful and it went mostly smoothly. Yeah. Well, the problem is the car sat for like two years since the last time we touched it and yes. I couldn't remember exactly what, what we, we had, had already loosened and disassembled. So turns like, out we had prepared the motor to pull it from the top. 
As but one piece. As one piece. And I thought because we had taken the oil pin off, we left the drain back tube for the turbo disconnected. We did not. We did not. And we we're like, this head should come off easier, but it was attached there. So. Well, it was attached because we still had the manifolds attached. We were trying to lift the whole thing off as a unit. So, yeah. Which makes it heavy, which is a little bit awkward, but not so heavy that we can't lift the friggin' thing. So we were very confused as to why we couldn't lift it off. Oh, anyway, we got it figured out. Anyway, we figured out that the drain tube was still on. It's it. on the master oh, the link. Ca- car was on, the, the car was on the belt. ground. Yeah. So, what? I said you found the master link in the time belt. Very bad jokes tonight, Andrew. <laughs> I apologize, everybody. We ate a lot of Korean food, and he's he's very he's very full and happy and contented. Mm. And he's trying to make jokes. It's just not going so well. Uh, whatever. Um, yes, we found the master link in the tying belt, and we snapped it right off. That's right. Um, anyway, so I should say that the reason we were having trouble pulling the cylinder head um, was because the motor had. I said motor again. Andrew's gonna kill me. The engine had. ARP studs instead of head bolts. Yeah. So normally, if you have the motor together, when you lift the head off the block, you have to push it a little to the passenger side to clear some brackets that we weren't even thinking about. Cause By we like never, a half an inch. If even that far, millimeters of clearance are out of the way. But you can't slide the head over at all, so we couldn't lift it straight up. So yeah. we had to pull off all the power steering and AC brackets, which it was just... It's something that should have taken... 30 minutes took us maybe an hour and a half just because we were just being dumb about things. But nonetheless, the head's off the car. Head looks in good shape, but it had some metal shaving material in it from when it's on a bearing. Um, So I wanted to send that out to the machine shop to have it cleaned before reassembling it in the car with the new motor. Because why go through all the work and then have metal shavings in the car? However, we did discover that I do need a new turbo. Yeah, it's got a ton of play in it. So, so that's going to delay the project a little bit because mm-hmm. I wasn't, I didn't budget to replace the turbo. Basically, I know I can get a used turbo fairly inexpensively. Yeah, that's probably what I'll wind up doing. But even fairly inexpensively is out of the budgeted allotment of cash that was put aside to fix the engine. So, it yeah, takes a little extra time. I mean, a used 14B is probably 150 bucks. And, and but this is a very budget build. Yeah, and you know. Wasn't going to cost much more than that in parts and materials anyway. That, but I already had, so I don't have that extra hundred and fifty bucks this week. I give it a couple mm-hmm. weeks, I'll I'll be able to pick up a used turbo somewhere. But so, good news is everything's out. Blocks down the machine shop still. Now the head is down the machine shop with it. Everything's going to be measured, checked, cleaned, checked for flatness, straightness, and uh, hopefully be good to go. And then we can at least put it together mm-hmm. without the turbo for now. And uh, get it ready to just drop in the car. Hopefully, next couple of weeks. Yeah. So that was the. That's a pretty big project here update, actually. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Because yeah. I, I helped you with that all weekend, so I didn't do anything else. All weekend. I mean, it was like two and a half hours total. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was that. And then, yeah. I didn't do anything else because yeah. I was helping you with that. There was no other car stuff done. Mm-mm. We did a lot of. Uh, Project car research for our friends Rally Golf for ignition cutoff. Yes. And stuff to do this weekend. Or yep. this weekend. Is there, this weekend? When are we doing that? Probably this weekend. I think someone had the. Oh, Thursday night. I don't know. Whatever. Some, Coming up someone soon. had a cold or something. So 
I don't know if they're still around for it. So. Oh, okay. We'll, we'll see. see. Because I don't want to get sick. If not, maybe you can come with my other big news that I have to talk about next week. Okay. Anyway. So no other scale, no, no other project car updates? Nope. Any scale project car updates? Not for me. Have you built anything? I have been, actually. Because my stuff is not set up because we're revamping our... Uh, hobby room. Hobby room, craft area, home office. So yeah. I have it all torn down. I have been, actually. I've been on in... Not just scale car life, but in real car life, I've been on a super kick of looking at traditional 60s and 50s customs mm-hmm. and drag cars of the era. Yep. So I've decided to build a scale model car of an old gasser style drag car. So I've been working on that pretty much every night the past week or so. Cool. So that'll be, I'll put pictures up once I'm at a point where it looks like something on the uh, Instagram page more than likely, but... No, I've mostly been playing uh, Forza 7. So. That's true. You do play a lot of Forza 7 lately. Mm-hmm. We're tending to be the C-class car kings. <laughs> yeah. We build some B-class stuff, but... We just... The people we enjoy racing with and us enjoy C-class because the cars are fast enough to be entertaining, but slow enough to be, like, reasonable. Yeah. Plus, they most closely emulate cars we actually own in real life. Except for, like, the Evo and STIs would be in B-class. Yeah, we don't own those anymore. So that's why I want to build one of those. Yeah, but I have a WRX. True. So there's that. You can build a C-Class WRX in Forza. Maybe. You have a C-Class Galant. But that started like a D. I did it. Yeah. Anyway, a little off topic. Um, but Forza 7 is great if you haven't had a chance to play it yet. I'm sure you have. But if you're a car person that plays video games, you likely have played Forza 7. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, C-Class is definitely our, our jam. Um, any events? Nothing happened. No cars and coffees. It's been cold. Nope. No car shows. It's been cold. Nope. Nothing big. What are we going to talk about tonight, Andrew? Um, well, a couple things. Uh, the Daytona 24 hours. Yep. Or the Rolex 24, as it's properly called. Whatever. It will always be the 24 of Daytona in my head. Um, that is going on this weekend. Last year I went to it. Yeah, which was this year we sweet. talked about it, but we didn't quite put it together. Yeah. Um, and then a couple of weeks afterwards is the Daytona 500. Which we care a little bit less about, but enough to talk about it. It's pretty cool. I've never been. You've been a bunch of times to that. I've been like twice. I've been a bunch of times. All right. Well, that's more two more times than I've been. That's true. So it's 100% more times than you have been. That's a 200%. No, it's 100%. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Not 200%. I, I good at math. Yeah. If I had been twice and you had been once, that still be, if I had been three times and you had been once, that would be two. I don't know. Whatever. I can't do math either. It's a quarter of ten at night and recording this. I, uh, I, I, I do math from eight to five. So After, anyway, no maths. I would argue, Brad, the most famous racetrack in the United States is Daytona. Uh, in the United States? Yeah. I would argue Indianapolis is more famous. See, I would say if you ask someone... To name a racetrack that's not a car person, they'd probably say Daytona. Indianapolis. No, you think Indianapolis? 100%. And then maybe third, Charlotte Motor Speedway? I don't even know. There would be a third that would be consistent enough. I think that would be regional. Okay. I think a non-car person after Daytona and Indianapolis would name their local track. I couldn't think of any movies that have been made about Indianapolis, though. Like a mainstream Hollywood movie where I can think of movies that have been made around NASCAR. So people would know Daytona. Like Days of Thunder or 
even like uh, what was Ricky that, Bobby. Wait, what was that Sylvester Stallone movie? I don't think a lot of people watched that movie. Yes, they did. That was a major Hollywood movie. I mean, it wasn't good. Yeah, but like, Speed or something like that. Or but people actually watched Redline. Days of Thunder. People actually watched this movie too. And people like Days of Thunder was a big deal. Uh, and then people actually watched, and I I like Talladega Nights. I mean, it does talk about Talladega, but it's in the name of the movie. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a Daytona movie. Yeah, but they they go to it. I think in the movie. And what was the movie that they robbed Charlotte Motor Speedway? That was a recent one. That's Logan Lucky. Well, Logan Lucky. Yeah, that's it. Which I I like that movie. It was entertaining. Yeah. It wasn't like it was it was no Talladega Nights, but it was it was an entertaining. No, movie. it was fun. Um, so. My question that came up this week when we were coming up for the show stuff, I was like, why do they race at Daytona? Like, other than the immediately known... Driven. That's what the movie was. Driven. Uh, As opposed to driver, driven, drive. Yeah. Uh, Past tense. (laughs) I mean, it's got two whole stars on IMDb. What's like the Rotten Tomatoes? Go find that. 14%. (laughs) Of critics or people? I don't know. It's just Rotten Tomatoes, 14%. I don't know how it works. There's like a critics rating and then like a people rating. Hold on. I'm clicking on it right now. It might have me going. Because sometimes movies will have low critic ratings, but high audience ratings. Okay. So the critic rating is 14%. Okay. The audience rating is 33%. So some people like it. Yeah. 33% of people don't have any taste. Critically not well received. 33% 30%, of people... I mean, 33% is not well-received at all. <laughs> Out of 100. <laughs> but or, is it, or is it 200%? No. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's 33 out of 200. But it's 14 out of 100, just to keep it straight. Okay. Um, but the only thing I'm thinking, I've actually never seen the movie. I've never bothered. Because um, it's probably terrible. But now I'm trying to think... Because it was made in 2001, and I feel 2001 was the beginning of the split of IRL at IndyCar. Yeah. So I wonder if it was even involved with Oh, you may be totally off base. Or not. I don't even know. Well, all right. As far as terrible racing movies go, that is probably one of the worst. We can't say that. We've never seen it. You could be one of the 33%, Andrew. No. I'm going to... Actually, gonna... actually, we are on a podcast. Yeah. That makes us officially critics. Yeah, I'm gonna. So we'd be. I'm gonna definitely percent. say that even that I've never seen the movie, it's a really terrible movie. Hmm, strong statement. Strong statement. If you like the movie, write us and tell me why. Okay, so that movie came out in 2001. It was not released on DVD until 2004. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you how much how much uh, desire there was, or how much what do you call it? Not desire. What's the word I'm looking for? Demand there was yeah. for. Uh, for that movie. Yeah. That was pretty low. So, anyway. Okay, so yeah, it was IndyCar and Cart was the two things. And that was a Cart movie. So, therefore, Ugh. Indianapolis was not involved. I can't think of any movie that has to do with the Indy 500. Off the top of my head. I'm sure a listener will correct us on that. It might exist. Why don't you look it up while I'm doing this. So I'm trying. So, why did Daytona Beach become one of the most important places in American sports car and NASCAR racing? The obvious answer is... Oh, dude. What? Turbo. Oh. With the snail. Oh. The cartoon snail. Oh, see, I don't watch kids' movies, The whole really. point of that movie... Well, because you don't have a kid. Yeah. The whole point of that movie, that movie came out in 2013, which was four years ago, so my daughter was 10. Yeah. Actually, 
that Matt so, doesn't check out either because it's 2018 and 2013 was definitely five years ago. So my daughter was nine. So I definitely watched Turbo like a hundred times. And the whole point of that movie is Turbo is a snail who, with the help of some plastic model car parts, pretends to be a race pretends car. Pretends to be a race car. And he's the fastest snail in the world. Okay. And he races Indy 500. All right. So it's an excellent movie. What's the Rotten Tomato medium? <laughs> hold, hold on. I don't know. <laughs> It's probably better than than uh, it has to be. It's a Pixar movie, right? It's got to be like no, it's DreamWorks. All right, well, it's still, so it's DreamWorks. It's got to be. I'm gonna guess. All right, don't tell me. Okay. Uh, all right, wait, wait, don't tell me. Oh, wrong show. Critics, eighty nine percent, and uh, audience is like ninety eight. You're not. You're not correct. No, no, you're not correct. You're off by quite a, quite a few numbers. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, critic, critically acclaimed 67%. Whoa! And audience score was 65%. Whoa, not good for a kid's movie. It was a good movie, though. Oh, I guess, well, 40% didn't agree with you? I mean, I liked it. 67% agree with you. I liked it. As kids' movies go, it was good. I don't know how percentages work. 200% of people say that you're wrong (laughs) 77% of the time. All right. Anyway, so going back to your topic. Yeah. Uh, Why did Daytona Beach become one of the most important places for American sports car and NASCAR racing? Uh, Moonshine? Sort of. Okay. That's Uh, a story that I've always heard, obviously, that moonshine runners started racing in this country. There's got to be... Apparently, it's a pretty big myth, but there's got to be some fact in that myth. So okay. I'm sure some of it is true. So it's more like an old wives' tale that's been like and exaggerated it plays, over the it years. It plays into the NASCAR mythology really well. Oh, yeah, definitely. And the, for, out, the outlaw image they used to go for. Yes, but it, doesn't it seem odd? Like, why would you have a group of outlaws sign up for an extremely strict racing, together, seri- yeah. racing series? Guys, are you guys done breaking the law? Because I got some rules for you. Yeah. So, uh, but it's mostly because uh, Bill France Sr., who started NASCAR, is just a really good entrepreneur. He's like the WC Fields of auto racing? Basically. Yeah. Um, But before we get that far, um, you know, so like... Yeah, I was actually shocked to hear how early on racing started at Daytona Beach. Yeah. So... At, like right now, so IMSA is the sanctioning body for the current Rolex 24. Okay, which is International Motorsports Association? Yes. Yeah. Uh, but it was co founded by John and Peggy Bishop and Bill France Sr. in 1969. So this is after a split from the SCCA that John Bishop worked for. Okay. So the SCCA was one of the biggest organizations involved in pro racing in the 60s. It still is pretty big. It still is pretty big, but they had, like, all the big endurance series. Okay. Um, and, you know, that in itself is, like, a super long story. So I won't get too deep into that. Maybe for another day. That's enough to have an understanding for the rest of this. You just want to know that, like, right now, like, there is a connection between NASCAR and Inimsa That The France family. Yeah. Okay. So that that's, and I believe NASCAR still has a controlling stake in Inimsa. That's interesting. Yeah. It's pretty cool because, well, I'll get there, but let's go back and we'll talk about <laughs> Daytona Beach. And you're like, why is this little mid, like central this, Florida? Yeah. This little central mid coast on the Atlantic side. 
sleepy town become like a racing mecca. Epicenter. Yeah. And uh, I went to their website. and Whose or, website? Daytona Beach oh, town. Oh, okay. Yeah, the city. So I looked up the history. So Daytona, Daytona Beach was founded in 1870 and officially became a city when it was incorporated in 1876. And so most sources agree that it received its name from the founder, Mathis D. Day, a business tycoon from Mansfield, Ohio. He purchased 3,200 acres. That's a lot of acres. In the fall of 1870 for the sum of $1,200. Which sounds ridiculous now, but it must have been a lot of money in 1870. So in 1926, the three separate towns of Daytona, Daytona Beach, and Seabreeze merged as Daytona Beach. So, man, like, what does $1,200 get you to today? Not much. It does not get you a small town in, or a town in Florida. Doesn't, it doesn't even buy you, like, a, a week at a timeshare in Daytona, Florida. <laughs> no. Might get you, like, a, maybe a little trailer, like, mid-Florida or something. I don't think so. But it's interesting. So the history of racing in Daytona actually goes back over 100 years. See, NASCAR's, what, 50th anniversary was 98. Oh, so 2018 would be 70th because 2008 would be 60th. Yeah, actually 70 years of racing NASCAR. Actually, do you know that $1,200 in 1870 is, according to the calculator, $21,000 in 2017? So that was a relatively good deal. That is still a good deal, yeah. Yeah. so that's pretty interesting. I haven't heard much about NASCAR doing that. It's definitely 70 years. I'm doing the math right on that, right? I didn't hear what you said. Oh, no, it was 19, 1949 was the first, right? The first, what, NASCAR? No, 48. Was? NASCAR was founded in 48 because their 50th anniversary, was, 50th anniversary was 98. Yep. So then 2008 would have been 60th. This year was 70th. This year is 70th, yeah. Yeah. I haven't heard them, you know, I would have think they would do something for the 60th, 70th, but regardless... Uh, <clears throat> mostly it had to do with the beach. Yeah. Beautiful sandy was, beach. It was there. It was empty. It was flat. And the way the sand was there, it was packed solid enough to drive a car on it. Yeah. Because in the turn of the century, you didn't have enough paved roads. There was less than 200 paved roads in the entire United States. So if you wanted to test cars... And go as fast as you possibly can. And what year was this? This is in like 1903. Yeah. You couldn't do it. Like you had to find an open space to do it. So in Europe, they were doing it on beaches. Mm-hmm. And then they were doing it. Then, uh, so what would happen? You also do it where the people were. So like this, you know, Bonneville Salt Flats and that kind of stuff wasn't a good place to do it because there was nothing there. Exactly. So you needed the space and... uh but you also had better Florida weather because what would happen... Also, 1959, not to 1949. What? The, the Daytona opened, the Speedway opened in 59, not 49. No, but NASCAR was started Oh, oh sorry. I, I need to stop paying attention to changing dollar figures and listening mm-hmm. to what you're saying. So here's the other thing, too. At this time, at the turn of the century, cars were toys and a novelty for the wealthy. Right. They were not for the everyman. And wealthy northerners would uh, go down in winter 
in Florida, much like they still do, as they do, yeah. as we should. Except we're not wealthy Northerners. We're just average middle-class Northerners that need mm. to work all year. <laughs> so uh, J.F. Hathaway of Massachusetts okay. was down in Ormond Beach, which is just north of Daytona Beach. north of Daytona, right? They're connected, yeah. A couple yeah. miles away? No. Oh, really? They're like the next they town over. Okay. Um, he realized that this beach was nice and open, mm-hmm. and all the wealthy people would bring their cars down. To play with them. Right. Basically just in the sand. And of course, what are you going to do if somebody else has a car and you've got a car and there's wide open space and there's no rules? You're going to race. You're just going to race them, right? Yeah. Like that is really a thing that happened. It's a thing that would still happen. Yeah. Uh, And the beach is 26 miles long and 500 feet wide of hard packed sand. So plenty of room. Plenty of room. So, uh... J.F. Hathaway wrote to Automobile Magazine in New York. Not the original one. Uh, the original one, not the one. Not, not the David E. Davis one. Yeah. It was an old, older publication, and it caught the eye of promoter William Morgan. So he decided to schedule races down there because it made sense to do it during the winter. Because the money was there. The money was there. The weather was there. I mean, they were doing races up in the Northeast, in the New York area, New England, because, but they'd have to do them in the summertime. But if all these people are down in Florida, bring in the, the action where the people are. Exactly. So from 1903 to 1910, roughly, Ormond and Daytona Beach were sort of an epicenter of American racing. And people would actually run, quote-unquote, stock cars. And they'd have basically an oval set up, like, over miles. They'd do, like, 20-mile, like, lap. Like, the lap would be 20 miles. Which NASCAR today would be way more interesting with 20-mile tracks. Yeah. <laughs> Just say it. <laughs> but basically, they'd run one way down the beach, have to turn. Turn around and go back. Basically come to a crawl to make that turn around like a pole. Or else roll over. Yeah. And then just rip down the other side of the beach. And Ripping did, at 38 miles per hour. I mean, they did all sorts of stuff. So they had they actually figured out different classes for cars. They do... They probably use, they use sizes and they use... They use displacement, displacement, yeah. displacement, whether it was modified stock. Yeah. They'd have ones for touring cars. They'd actually put four people in the car. That's awesome. Yeah. And they'd just like rip up and down. And, uh, you know, at this time too... Like, pursuit of speed records was just a worldwide phenomenon. So yeah. having this nice wide open space, people would come and attempt speed records. Um, and the other interesting thing was that the that AAA, the American Automobile Association, was the sanctioning body. Yeah, AAA started as a racing body. Yeah. And, you know, a little note here was that the wealthy northern sportsmen controlled and organized automobile racing in both the north and south. Through, through AAA, which was headquartered in New York City. So it gave credibility to the records. Now, what uh, you had some info about Malcolm Campbell? Well, there were two. Um, this is a little later on. It's not like the 1900s. This is the 20s and 30s. Oh, okay. So we're not, we're not quite there yet. But a lot of the early racers were like Louis Chevrolet and Henry Ford. Oh, yeah. And uh, who was Osmond? William, William Durant. Yeah. And uh, Vanderbilt. Yep. Mercedes and 
all those guys. Carl Benz. They were coming over from Europe. Yep. Because even though they had wide open beaches in Europe and France and Belgium and then parts of England, the weather was crap. Yeah, it was ideal. Daytona weather is always If you wanted to come, yeah, and set speed records and show off your engineering skills and your building skills and cars were a novelty, people would line the beach and just watch this and, like, it's pretty crazy that that's what they would do. And this was all well, well, well before NASCAR even was, like, a twinkle in somebody's eye. So... So, um, it was William Vanderbilt who set one of the first records down there on the beach. Yeah. And I was being a little facetious saying they're ripping up and down the beach at 37 miles an hour. Um, it is fast. But in 1904, yeah. William Vanderbilt was down there in Mercedes and here in 97.4 miles an hour. That's very fast. That's still fast. In 1904. Fast. That's still fast on sand. Yeah. Wasn't absolutely frightening in the car of that little technology. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, you basically wanted to be thrown from the wreck. Yeah, Ransom Olds was one of the first ones to race down there all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting to me. Oh, Alexander Winton, that was the other guy's name I couldn't think of. Yeah. The time period between... Okay, so that... Okay, now that's... The first record was set at 68.1 miles an hour by Alexander Winton mm-hmm. in the bullet number two car. And that would have been in 1903. I know that even later on... You had famous people like uh, uh, Zora Arkostentov was down there setting records in before the Corvette was the yep. thing when they were doing development on the Chevy V8. Yeah, they were working on the small block. Yep. They were, they were setting records down there on the beach. Yeah. So Winton, so it, was, it was March 26, 1903. He ran the measure, a measured mile of 68.1 yeah. miles an hour. I mean, they were doing speed records. Uh, it did kind of start to fall out of favor, but they were still doing speed records into the early 50s. On the beach? On the beach, oh, yeah. That's cool. But um, the cool thing about uh, Winton, um, if you know early automotive history, he was um, the first car salesman. He was the first, he's credited as the first person to sell a like gasoline-powered, you know, horseless carriage to a private individual. Hmm. So he was big in the early days of, of cars. Um, but he was always battling with um, ransom olds, so they were like you know bitter friends and rivals at, at selling cars and racing cars. So that's kind of a, a cool history that the you know they always that 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 whole comment about you know the first race being when the second car was built thing kind of reigns true. <laughs> it was it was those two guys just trying to sell more cars and race faster cars with each other. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I can't imagine running. That fast, those kinds of speeds on those cars when you're literally just sitting on a plank of wood. <laughs> there's no, there's nothing to it. There's no helmets or anything. Just you, an engine, a plank of wood, and a couple axles. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, it's it's pretty crazy. I mean, even when you get into like it, it kind of fell out of favor. To race on the beach after, so this is pre-World War One. So World War One comes around and obviously focuses on World War One, And then afterwards, they're back to land speed records. And then, like, even in... Now you're into the 30s when you have... You're into uh, the 20s. 
Sorry, I'm so Malcolm, Malcolm Campbell and Henry Seagrave. Henry Seagrave, the, the two that competed back and forth for a while there yeah. on uh, on on Daytona with and, and everywhere as far as land, land speed records go. But they were the two two of the highest ones because you had um, Henry Seagrave was the first to break two hundred miles an hour. Yeah, on Daytona Beach, two hundred eleven miles an hour. Yeah, the, gold, the golden arrow, which you've probably seen models of and pictures of over it's the crazy. years. Crazy. I think it's a V sort of V twelve Rolls Royce in that thing. Mm-hmm. So he was the first. That was in 1926, I think. I didn't write it down. Um, actually, you know what? I, um, I'm thinking back. The Golden Arrow was the car he was famous for, but he did 200 miles an hour in the 1,000-horsepower Sunbeam, which was yeah. pretty crazy. And then the next person to put a big number up would have been Malcolm Campbell, who drives actually a pretty famous blue like rail car. Which is a V12 um, Rolls Royce engine. He did 300 miles an hour in 1935 on Daytona Beach in a car that was basically just an engine and some tubes. <laughs> so 300 miles an hour in 1935 is yeah. really fast. So this is pretty uh, interesting. So like the early Corvette. So okay, first gen 1956. Yeah, they had a land speed record version, like a test version, a test mule. Yep. So Zor Arkostantov, he uh, got an average of 150 miles per hour in 1956. Okay, and, and, it's a, and basically a, a streetcar, first gen. Yeah, with like yeah. some aero stuff done to it. Yeah, that's fast. pretty crazy. That's fast. Anyway, so going through your book. What else you got there? Yeah. <laughs> Andrew is, is doing wonderful radio and flipping through the pages of yeah, a Corvette book. Yeah. I mean, so at that time, um, it was neat because uh, NASCAR was doing the timing for the land speed records. I always thought that was pretty interesting. It was no longer AAA? No. By that point, AAA no. might have been a towing company anyway yeah <laughs> basically it was the same company but, but yeah what's interesting too about those those 200 mile an hour and the 300 mile an hour um times is they weren't american drivers they were european drivers mm-hmm. both british drivers so oh yeah this is also interesting so um betty skelton was the uh, fastest woman yet, and this was in like 1956, 137 mile per hour average on Daytona in a Corvette. So that was pretty neat. Um, but yeah. yeah, we're not Corvette people here at the auto topic, but there is some interesting stuff in early Corvettes. Yeah, it was just interesting in like that, like land speed records were a thing, and they're not so much anymore for production cars. No, not really for production cars. Actually, no, like, they really are for production cars. You have all the top supercar manufacturers are still trying to get that oh, highest yeah, I number. Guess. I guess, yeah. I mean, you just had, I was at Koenigsegg, rented out that road in Nevada somewhere to try to break That's 300 right. and however many miles an hour, like 318 or something they did. There was the, the uh, was it Bentley or Aston? The thing, I think it was on the drive. Anyway, being terrible at this. But basically, what happened was a lot of this evaporated in the late 30s because people decided that um, 
you know, beachfront property is pretty expensive and pretty nice. And you'd rather have people out on the beach and not getting run over by cars doing 300 miles an hour. I don't know. I think it's be cool <laughs> to see it still. I, yeah. I mean, I'd be okay with it, but, uh, normal We're people, not the normal person. Yeah. Two, 285 was the Koenig. So eventually this stuff, that's when it started to move to the Bonneville salt flats was after people decided that they didn't want it in their backyard anymore. Someplace people didn't hang out. Yeah. They'll move it to the <laughs> middle of nowhere. But at that point too, um, transportation in the country had gotten better and it was easier to get a mass of people somewhere instead of yeah. going somewhere where people already were, you could be like, Hey, let's take this somewhere else away from people that don't want to be involved. Yeah. It just became more important to have tourism. Um, but you did keep, there was circle track racing, what amounted to early NASCAR races in the late, late 50s, mid, well, yeah, you had mid thirties to late thirties, then World War II, and then after World War II, so, uh, like 46, 47 and 49, that's when you started having what is basically considered the earliest NASCAR races, mm-hmm. actual stock cars. And probably that's where, you know, moonshiners, that's where the myth came from, that moonshiners would show up to these races with their Those cars because the they were souped up. Uh, but that's the thing. It was even, I don't know much about moonshine running, but apparently it continued after Prohibition ended. Because people still didn't want to pay taxes on their liquor. Well, not only did they not want to pay taxes, but these families, their whole world was yeah, was manufacturing and selling moonshine. Exactly. So they had no backup plan. Yeah. You know, it took a while for generations to change that. So it was just kind of interesting. So that went into just before World War II, paused for World War II, then it picked back up after World War II. Well, that's when Bill France was heavily involved because he moved down there in the late 30s, yep. uh, right before World War II. To apparently escape the Depression and open a repair shop. Right. And, and I he, suppose if you've got to live and be... Potentially pro- homeless? Yeah. And, <laughs> you and might as well do it in Florida? Yeah, where it's going to be mostly when it's going to be mostly warm. Like, yep. it's easier to deal with if you don't have to pay to heat your home. So I know or, he, he ran his first event. He, he actually drove a stock car down there at first in like 36, I think 36, it was. yep. And then he became a promoter instead afterwards. Oh, he's so, definitely an entrepreneur. Yeah. So he went from a homeless guy in Daytona Beach to running one well, of Well, I think biggest, he owned a car repair shop, but... Okay. <laughs> I'm saying homeless because based on the story, you just, you know, not really a homeless guy, but he went from being a average Joe living in Florida mm-hmm. to owning the one of the largest, you know, racing companies in the world yeah with NASCAR. I mean, it's, it's just like that entrepreneurial spirit right um but i found an interesting quote from uh bill france uh in an old sports illustrated found it through doing some research on the internet but um because people kind of think that he's the one that started racing in florida but it really started much earlier. See, obviously, he didn't. He wasn't around in 1902. No, no, no. But he said, uh, I used to sneak the family Model T out in the big banked board speedway of Laurel, Maryland and try to run some fast laps. On oh, the mid-20s? Yeah. That's and, awesome. Uh, then he goes on to say, I first became interested in motor racing back in the board track speedway days. I was only... I was only at three of them, Altoona, Pennsylvania, Atlantic City, New Jersey, and Laurel, Maryland. 
I knew of a board speedway just north of Miami, but I never got to see it because a hurricane destroyed it before I got down there. So that's another interesting thing is like board board tracks, mm-hmm. which are called motodromes because they originally started for like motorcycles. Yeah, they were velodromes. Well, velodromes for bicycles. bicycles and then motodromes. A motodrome is for a down. motorcycle. Yeah, motorized. And then they just basically just got bigger because they didn't have the technology to build paved, pavement. Yeah, yeah, paved, banked tracks. Which is like kind of nightmarish. Like, imagine driving. Yeah, it's like basically going on the back porch of your house, but it's at an angle, and you're going to drive your car around it. Right. And if you crash and you break it, you splinter your, yourself to death. Oh, you just fly off. The, yeah. <laughs> like if you go too high to the banking, there's no cement wall. You just fly off. Yeah. And whatever. And uh, I believe by whatever you mean, die a horrible fiery death. Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, maybe. Maybe you're lucky and you get thrown and you land in a tree and don't hit the ground. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Just utterly insane. Um, But I always thought, and that's the other thing, that, that's like a whole other thing we should look into is board track racing. Cause there's so many board tracks. They were a lot local here too, actually. Yeah. We could actually go to, and this is a little, you know, super local information, but um, there used to be a speedway in Groveland, near where I live. Yeah. Um, and every year they have the Groveland reunion. Yeah. And they have a bunch of old timers get together and share pictures. And there was one here in West Peabody. Trade stories about it. But they had the reunion every year in Groveland. So, anyway, so, so of course, as time went on, the enterprising Bill France formed NASCAR in 1949. That's where the but, I get around the years. Yeah. But I, actually, I. Think I even I think I even wrote that wrong. It should be 1948. Yeah, sorry, I typed it wrong. Uh, so where are we here? The other thing. So the track was so NASCAR was started in 1948. Correct. But the Daytona track wasn't completed till 1958. So that entire time they did do circle track races on the beach. On the beach still. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was getting hotter and hotter every year, though, because much like any place you do racing now, there's neighborhood lobbies and stuff are trying to get things stopped. Yeah. But people, because they had been racing in that part of Florida for almost 50 years at that point. Yeah. People did appreciate it, and there was a value in it. Some people. So he (laughs) was able to build a racetrack on right next to the municipal airport. Yeah, not too far from the beach, actually. You can... That's the thing. So from the upper levels, you can see the beach. Mm-hmm. Like you're probably like a mile, mile and a half from the beach. But it was probably like swampland at the time. More than likely. Most of Central Florida is. And nobody <laughs> wanted it. And that's the crazy thing about Daytona is where the track is. Unlike every other track I've ever been to that's in the middle of nowhere, it's in the middle of a city. A city, yeah. And it's kind of cool like that. Yep. Yeah, you, you like walk outside the track and like a walk across, across the street, street and go to like a restaurant. Yeah. No, I went to Outback last year for for like dinner. Right. Just which I literally I walked. I uh, I I will go to Outback when I'm in Florida because to me Outback is a local chain when you're in Florida. That's true. <laughs> Another a Florida original, just like NASCAR. Yeah. So the the track was built. Actually, it was finished in late '58, and it was ready. By February 59 for the first Daytona 500. Yes. And, and a, who won the first Daytona 500? The first Daytona 500. Oh, I don't know. I do not know. No, but it's a two and a half mile track. 
but it's actually a trioval, which is interesting. It's not a full oval, which I'm not sure why they went with a trioval. Maybe it's better for passing, but basically it was designed and similar to the way motor drums are designed. So you could have people and stands and they could see the entire race. Okay. Because they think what people realize that, you know, in Europe, they got accustomed to road racing, but here people really like sporting events where they sit in a stadium mm-hmm. in the United States. You can see it off in one place. Yeah. So that's kind of, that was the idea of Daytona. You could see the entire track. Well, plus at that point, um, Indy had already been there for a while too. Exactly. So the, the, oval, the oval track was just what we're used to in, this, in, this, in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, you never answered the question of who won the first. Don't I don't know. Oh. I thought you were looking it up. No, I already knew the answer. Because my my hero growing up was Richard Petty. He won the first one? He did not. His father, Lee Petty, did. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> a so, twist there. So I knew that from my experience of being a giant NASCAR fan in the 80s and being a huge Richard Petty fan. Yeah. So there's a 31-degree banking, which is pretty intense. It is pretty intense, actually. Yeah. And then what we know of today, which I was surprised, the three-and-a-half-mile road course that uses part of the... Uh, road uses part of the oval track mm-hmm. was completed in 1959 as well. Oh, same year. So early, like Actually, was early, it for, wasn't it for motorcycle racing though at first? I didn't see anything about that, I but early that. on, I was very surprised that they had the forethought to to build a road course in the, in the center. Yeah, so that was pretty interesting. So, what was the first endurance race there? First endurance race wasn't until 1962. There were some other smaller races. Um, it was called the Daytona Continental. Yep. Which actually the first Daytona Continental was won by who? Dan Gurney. Who we talked about last week. Yeah. Interesting, right? Yeah. And Lotus, I think. Yep. And then in 1964, they, uh, lengthened the race to 1200 miles of 1240 miles. The Continental. Yeah. It was like a thousand before. Uh, and it. Amounted roughly to half the distance of the 24 hours of Le Mans. It's what they would, the winners would cover over the tw- whole 24 hours. And I'll, I'll, exp- I'll expand it to 1,240 miles. Yep. Just double 1,000 kilometers, which they used to run at Nürburgring Spa in Monza. Yeah. So it was also similar in length to the 12 hours of Sebring. Which is also Florida. Which is also Florida. Yep, that's held on an old airfield. airfield. Yeah. Yep. Well, it wasn't old at the time. Yeah. Now, now it's old. Um, but it's all kind of flat. It's a totally different track. Totally different style. So then in 66, it became the 24-hour race. Yes. That's actually not no, only three years of not 24 hours, and it became 24-hour race. Mm-hmm. It that's was crazy. the... That's the interesting thing, too, what it was called. From 64 to 65, they called it Daytona, the Daytona 2000. Because that's part of the kilometers. Yeah. 66 to 71, 73, 75, 77, 24 hours of Daytona. The reason why they don't list 72 or 74 is because the race was canceled in 72 for the oil okay, crisis. Embargo. And then 74 was short, shortened to six hours. For the same reason? For the same reason. Interesting. Um, then 78 through 83. I didn't realize it was called the 24-hour Pepsi challenge. I don't think I'd want to take a 24-hour <laughs> Pepsi challenge. <laughs> Just drink Pepsi for 24 yeah, hours. That's a pretty terrible name. Ugh. And uh, 84 to 91 was the Sunbank 24 at Daytona. 
Well, I mean, I guess a 24-hour Pepsi challenge wouldn't be too bad, because if it's in the true spirit of the race, you'd have three people on your team taking turns. And you'd mostly be drinking Coca-Cola? Why? I don't know. It's Pepsi, Pepsi challenge. challenge. Oh, that's right, too. you got to figure out which one's Pepsi. Yeah. That's right, too. So you'd be, you'd be drinking a lot of Coca-Cola and RC Cola. Yeah. And whatever local store brand. That's right, Jeff. I forgot the true the true origins of the Pepsi Challenge. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, in 92, it's now the Rolex 24, as we know it. Which it's been ever since. Yeah. And the winner gets a Rolex watch. Right. Amongst a lot of other things. Yeah. Most wins, Hurley Haywood. Mostly in Porsches, obviously. Porsche is the number one winning car. In most sports car racing, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also interesting because there are, like, the other thing with that is it's, like, as far as Porsches sold, it's something crazy. Like, I'm just kind of making up the numbers, but it's, like, you know, half Porsches are sold in, like, Europe, right? Then, like, 45 or 35% are sold in, like, Southern California. And then the other 15% are sold in Florida or some kind of split of the 50% well, is between Southern California and Southern Florida. Well, and the big Porsche dealer, Porsche dealer in Southern California has fielded a team at Le Mans forever, Brumos. At the Rolex. Yeah. yeah. At, 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 at the 24-hour Daytona. Yeah. So Brum, Brumos Porsche is one of the... It's like those are the two epicenters of Porsche ownership is like Southern Florida and Southern California. Well, it's weather. It is. The weather like lends itself well to those vehicles. Yeah. Although the... the Roads in Southern Florida don't really, but I guess it's, there's a lot of sports car racing. So, um, and I forgot where I was. I wasn't paying attention. I was looking up. There was an interesting thing in like early nineties about a team running, uh, some talons there and stuff, but at the 24, mm-hmm. what team would that have been? Were they the yellow and black second gens? No. No? Let me see here. It is... Dead air. No. Dead air. I just remembered it now. I meant to do it earlier, but it's it's buried in my email. So we'll That's forget okay. that for now. It happened. You can trust us. Yes. All right. So... I mean, we got to try to bring it back to Mitsubishi somehow. <laughs> yeah, I know. But it's like, that's basically brings us to today. And that's why we race or I don't race, but that's why. Well, it's still, it's still considered almost like a test for the rest of the season because it's so warm there in February that everybody gets all amped up and, you know, gets ready for the Lamar by running at Florida. Yes, it is part of the. Triple Crown of Endurance Racing. So you have the 24 hours, the Rolex 24, Mm -hmm. 12 hours of Sebring, Mm -hmm. and the 24 hour of Le Mans. Which is obviously a very convenient um, run of events. You have two right near each other in Florida, and then one in France. Yeah. (laughs) So really early on in the season, they get the cars ready, shaken down, and then they can go to France and hopefully win. Mm -hmm. But in case you were wondering, like, why... For whatever reason, because it doesn't seem like like Florida gets such a bad rap now these days. Florida, not like the rest of us. Yeah, like why would you? Why does all this racing take take place 
in Florida, but now it makes sense that it's the weather. It's tradition. It's been there for people started doing this at the turn of the century. You know, it was to test cars, to test their, you know, the car strength, their ability to drive these cars. And, you know, basically it's, it's existed before NASCAR. Now, if you want to go see beach racing now, there are still some cool events you can go see, but they're vintage events. Rel- they're relatively recent. Um, well, the one in the United States is, um, but there's been one in, in Europe at the Pendine Sands in England forever. Yeah. Um, but there's the Race of Gentlemen, known as the Trog, which they raced one in California, and they raced one in New Jersey. I believe it started in New Jersey. New Jersey, Wildwood Beach. Yeah. That's and in then June of this. The- expanded to California. California. Yeah. So June 9th of this year. Because they were doing it in the fall, but the weather was so crappy. Right, because New England. Well, it's New Jersey. Well, close enough to New England. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so that's in June of this year. June 9th is when it starts. Um, and it's all, I think it's pre, I don't know what year it is, but they're all open fendered. I thought it was like pre-30 or something. Yeah, maybe 33 or 34. Yeah. I don't. It's it's pretty cool because it definitely, they definitely have that feel. Of that early pioneer times of auto racing on the beach. Yep. Yeah, I definitely would like to see that some year. Yeah, like this year. Yep. Because it's only like a day's drive away. Not even a day's drive away. So much of this info comes from, uh, it's a paper. I, I can put up a link for it. It was written by Dr. Randall L. Hall. And it's before NASCAR, the corporate and civic promotion of automobile racing in the American South. It's kind of an interesting read. There was a bunch of big races held in the South in the 1920s. One of the big appeals was that the racing that was done, so like the Vanderbilt Cup was held on Long Island, but crowd control was really hard. The governor of New York didn't want to loan like National Guardsmen or whatever they had troops to control the crowds. But down in Savannah, Georgia, they were willing to do it for this uh Vanderbilt cup and you're reading it. And one of their things that they were really happy about was that they only had to shoot one spectator to keep them from interfering with the race. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, apparently can we, we read into that rule when spectator marshalling yeah. at New England forest <laughs> rally? Yeah. <laughs> the, the person didn't die. They were wounded, but, uh, it was preferable to not have people get hit by cars. You'd rather shoot them instead. So, <laughs> all right. Yeah, that would be definitely be nice for some rallies uh, if you're allowed to just threaten them. With a gun. <laughs> yeah. Listen, either the car, which is like a bullet, will kill you. Well, or the bullet, which is more like a bullet, will kill yeah, you. Yeah, so you should stay on the side of the road and not get in the way. Yeah. Maybe some of the... But the thing is where the rally is, they would probably pull a gun on you too, so... <laughs> it's worth a shot. <laughs> Literally. Yes. But um boom Anyways... I think I'll call that an episode. If you want to, you can please follow us on Facebook, Auto Off Topic Podcast. Make sure you click the follow button and see us first so you get our updates. Follow us on Instagram, uh, Auto Off Topic. You can follow me on Instagram, at Race and Anger. Brad, where can they find you? TSISS350 on Instagram or on all of these um, auto off topic pages as well. Yes. Uh, I would like to thank, there are people rating us, which is great. 
sending out stickers to you. Uh, I've got a couple more stickers to go out. I'm sending them out every week. Uh, and as always, keep your cars analog and aim for the roses.